0: Church history. Church history is not just history of the church, but in many ways it is, frankly, the history of the world. The history of the world is built on the backbone of the history of the church. Tonight's lesson is divided broadly into two categories. These two categories are pre Reformation and post-reformation. Let me get my notes up because that might come in handy. Uh, I was going to do it in four sections, but I thought that dividing in, dividing it into two is actually a little bit more... Um, like historically logical, in that sense. So, um, if you know anything about the Reformation, you know roughly when that is. Um, you know that we have um, an unequal balance of attention that we're going to spend um, if we're dividing it into two major sections. The first fifteen hundred years are one section, and then the second fifteen or the second five hundred years um, are the second section. So. Uh, We're going to be skipping our way through, frankly, skipping our way through all of this, but especially skipping through this pre-Reformation era uh, because it's just a much larger section. If you're trying to cover the events that take place over a 2,000-year period of time in an hour to an hour and a half, there's just a lot of stuff that we have to skip. So please keep in mind that this lesson tonight is very much... An overview and not to be considered exhaustive. There's also notes available for you on the app. So if you have the church app or if you don't have the church app, I'd encourage you to get it. It's a search for PBC NYC in the App Store and then under um, one of the sections, probably sermons, then Wednesday worship, then um, this lesson seven then click on those three things and then click notes under lesson 7 and you should see the powerpoint i give you the powerpoint not so you can scan ahead and see what we're going to say and then zone out but rather so that you can follow along in the time also it's helpful if you're looking things up later or if i say something wrong it's helpful for you to be able to look it up and to verify or if there's something wrong in the notes you can see that the person actually lived in a different Time period than what I said on the notes. So um, my lessons are not infallible. So feel free to um check things out, look things up. Um so starting off with pre-Reformation, uh if you were to ask a Roman Catholic who the first Pope was, they would say Peter. Peter. Um Whether or not Peter is the first pope is not something I'm interested in debating tonight. Uh, Just tonight's lesson, I would like to start after the close of Scripture, so that's why we're starting with Clement. Clement I, Bishop of Rome from roughly 88 to 99 AD. Uh, The second person to mention is Polycarp. Uh, Polycarp is Bishop of Smyrna, so I thought about doing just a list of the, the, the popes, but That would take a very long time if I'm going to do anything more than just read their name. And if you want to read their name, you can read their name on your own. Um, So the names of these people that I'm going to mention are not all the popes or bishops of Rome, but are a smattering of interesting pre-Reformation figures. So the second name here is Polycarp. Polycarp is a disciple of John the Apostle. John the Apostle, the guy who wrote the book of Revelation and... John, and 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. So, one of the thoughts that is popular is that um, there's religion, and then there's the real world. There's the world of the Bible, and then there's reality, and re- these worlds don't cross. There's, um, there's our religion, there's our faith, and then there's history, and that these are two separate things. But I'm here to tell you these are not two separate things and that our religion is actually a historical religion and that there are a great many ancient writings and ancient artifacts and ancient people. And one to mention right now is Polycarp. Polycarp was a disciple of John, the apostle, who wrote five books that are in the Bible. So this guy was taught by a guy who wrote scripture. The third person to mention is Irenaeus. Irenaeus was taught by Polycarp, who was taught by John. So, there's this linking from the world of Jesus and the apostles into history beyond the first century. So, Irenaeus disciple Polycarp and was ordained by Polycarp, and he would later become the bishop of Lyon in France. Or lion, if you don't want to say it right. Um, number of- point D, Tertullian. Uh, Tertullian lived from 160 to 225. He's the author and apologist from Carthage, Carthage in Northern Africa, and his most famous book is Against Heresies. So he is an early apologist who is writing to defend the faith. If you don't know what the word apologist means, it doesn't mean you're apologizing. It means you're defending, you're giving a defense or an explanation for the faith. And he was doing that in the second century. The next person to mention is Origen. Origen. He was from Alexandria in Egypt. uh, Very famous for his preaching. But his theology was not real sound. So if you do happen to stumble across Origen's sermons, the sermons of Origen, and you're like, wait a second, this guy believes in universalism. uh, You would be correct, Patrick. And that is a heresy. Some people try to say universalism is not a heresy, and I'm here to tell you that it is, because Jesus taught extensively about the reality of hell. And he said things like, except you repent, you will all likewise perish. And perish is not the same thing as going to heaven. So, the idea of universalism is false. The idea of universalism is that All dogs go to heaven. Everybody's saved. Every human being ends up in heaven regardless. And that's simply not true. So, if you find yourself reading a book of origin sermons, um, be aware of that. I would recommend not even bothering because there's plenty of better ways to use your time. But he's an important figure to know. The sixth one to mention is Eusebius. Eusebius is known as the father of church history. So there are many historians and many approaches to doing church history. And Eusebius is the first prominent one that was recording things happening there in the early centuries of the church. Uh, Next, let's talk about Constantine. No discussion about the origins of Christianity is complete without a friendly TikTok atheist telling you that Constantine invented Christianity, Constantine invented the Bible, Constantine invented all of these things, and it's not real, and it was made up, and I'm here to tell you we're going to talk about Constantine. So, uh, Constantine became emperor in approximately 306 until he died on May 22nd, 337. So that's, uh, what, 31 years he reigned as emperor. Um, His conversion is, uh, I would consider, highly suspect. He certainly was converted in some sense, but the motives and the reality of it, whether it was actually converted to, to Jesus or to something that he saw as politically expedient, that's another matter completely. But in his conversion testimony, he sees a vision of a cross in the sky and that cross has the words written on it in hoc signo vincis or in this sign thou shalt conquer or by this sign conquer. So naturally what he does is he paints the sign of, he paints the cross on the shields of his soldiers shields and sends them off to go kill people in the name of Jesus um, some historians have observed that Constantine saw the rise of Christianity and, and thought this is kind of the way of the future, sort of like getting in on cryptocurrency a few years ago or buying an electric vehicle today. And you're just like, hey, this, this is what everybody's doing, so I'm going to get in on it, too. I'm going to ride this wave, and now we can help. I, we. I can direct the direction of Christianity by conquering in the name of Christianity. Uh, sort of like other p- politicians who do that type of thing. Um, the Edict of Milan. I don't remember what happened at the Edict of Milan, and I have nothing written for it in my notes. So let's say that that's when he legalized Christianity. I don't think it was legalizing. No, it was legalizing. He legalized it then, and then he, they stopped persecuting Christianity. And then later on, he made it the official uh, religion. Uh, but you can look that up more later. Constantine is also very famous for calling the Council of Nicaea, 325 AD. Uh, sorry to say for the TikTok theologians that this is not when Christianity was invented. It's not when the Bible was invented. Uh, it's not when the canon of scripture was invented. It's not when they decided what books belong in the Bible. None of that. Um, it was a church council. And one of the major things that they did at the Council of Nicaea was they condemned Arius As a heretic Um, I have an entire lesson on this On Arianism And it's either online Or still just on my iPad And I don't remember which But we did a whole series called Summer of Heresy I think last summer And we did a lesson on that So another thing that happened At the Council of Nicaea Was that three previously condemned bishops Were exonerated And declared not to be heretics So that's very nice for them Um, there's also the Nicene Creed, and then there's the Creed of Nicaea, which are two different things. Raise your hand if you knew that those were two different things. Anybody? Okay. I was right there with you yesterday. I didn't know those were two different things. I thought there's just the Nicene Creed and the Creed of Nicaea, and that it's all the same. Uh, The Nicene Creed dates to roughly 325, and the Creed of Nicaea dates to roughly 318. Uh, And I have... Here for you, the um, the Creed of Nicaea. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of all things, visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, begotten from the Father, only begotten, that is, from the substance of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made. That's important because Arius believed that Jesus was a created being. Christianity teaches that Jesus is eternal and not created. Uh, The only begotten that is from the same substance of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one substance with the Father, Through whom all things came into being, things in heaven, things on earth, who because of us men and because of our salvation came down and became incarnate and became man and suffered and rose again on the third day. When we say suffered, remember, we mean died. He died and rose again on the third day and he ascended into heaven and will come to judge the living and the dead and in the Holy Spirit. But as for those who say there was when he was not, in other words, there was a time when he was not. So for those who say there was a time when he, Jesus, was not, and before being born, he was not, and that he came into existence out of nothing, or those who assert that the Son of God is of a different hypostasis or different substance, or created, or is subject to Alteration or change, these, the church, the Catholic church, the Apostolic church, the universal church, these, the church anathematizes. So that's the biggest difference. This last section is the biggest difference between the two creeds. I'm about to read the second one here in a moment. But the Creed of Nicaea includes the curses at the end, the anathematization to pronounce curses upon you who deny these things, who distort these things, who say that Jesus is a created being. So this is coming out of the conflict with Arius at the Council of Nicaea because Arius is coming in saying, Jesus is not eternal. He is not of the same substance as the Father. He is a lesser being. He is less than the Father. And the Council, they came together. They're considering this issue Studying the word of God and saying, no, Jesus is of the same substance as the Father, of the same essence as the Father. And the way I've illustrated this in the past is that the substance or essence of this pulpit right here is wood. Let's call it oak. And if you drill down into it, what you find is more oak. And if you cut it in half, you find more oak. So this is of the essence of oak. And so the essence of God is God. And in that way, the essence and substance of Jesus and the essence and substance of God the Father and the essence and substance of the Holy Spirit is all the same. It's the same essence. It's the same deity. It's the same divinity. They're of the same essence, the same Godness. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. One God, yet three persons. So, The Nicene Creed is the following. It says, We believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of all that is, seen and unseen. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true light from true light, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. Through him all things were made. Creed, but the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, the Athanasian Creed. These creeds, which we're not reading, the Apostles' or the Athanasian Creed tonight, but these creeds are what make up the core of the definition of Christianity. If you say, "Oh, well, I'm a Christian," but just I'm not really down with what the the Council of Nicaea says about Jesus. I'm a Christian, but I I don't believe in this whole essence and substance thing or the person's issue. I have a different view of those things. I have a different view about the begottenness of the Son. I have a different view of the procession of the Holy Spirit. You're free to have a different view, but you're not free to say, I have that view and I'm a Christian. I would say, you may have that view, but you have invented a new religion. Moving on. Uh, Athanasius. Athanasius was born in Alexandria, Egypt. Alexandria was a center for Christianity. There were a number of these in the ancient world. There's uh, Alexandria, Egypt. There's uh, Jerusalem, um, Antioch, um, Rome. These are some, uh, Constantinople as well. These are some of the major centers for Christianity. And, Alexandria was where he was raised. Um, Very sad about the burning of the library of Alexandria because that was in all likelihood one place where many ancient biblical manuscripts were held. And when that library burned, um, the contents were burned. So Athanasius was raised by a pagan family. Uh, He ended up working for the bishop of Alexandria, whose name was Alexander, And he was involved in the Arian controversy by fighting against Arius, which was originated in Alexandria by Arius. Uh, He became the bishop of Alexandria after Alexander the bishop died because he was working for him. And then it ended up being this natural transition for him to be be the next bishop. Uh, He also is the one credited with writing the Athanasian Creed, which I love. I think it's a great creed. I think it's very underrated. And it's so great that I did not include it in my notes tonight. Uh, Moving on to Ambrose. Ambrose, Bishop of Milan. He was pressured into becoming bishop by the community. Uh, the, the, The community, the Christians there wanted a non-Aryan to take the position of bishop because apparently they had had an Arian and they were like, we're tired of this heresy, we're tired of this false teaching coming out and, and influencing the churches in our region, so we want a non-Arian, so Ambrose, it's going to be you. He stood against Arianism and he also popularized the antiphonal chant or a call and response style of singing. It's more popular in... Um, Catholic churches or um, these ancient uh, churches like Eastern or a Catholic church. But that came from him. Uh, He was a very godly man with strong character. He stood against the emperor who who killed lots of innocent people during war, and he told the emperor to repent. So, this man had something of a backbone, which is Very nice, especially for a bishop to have some level of courage to stand up against government authorities and tell them when they are doing things that are evil. Uh, He was also involved in Augustine's conversion. Um, Augustine sought him out and wanted to hear his teaching. This leads us then into consider Augustine. Some call him Augustine. I don't remember which way I prefer saying it, Uh, I've heard people say it both ways as I prepared for this. Raise your hand if you prefer Augustine. Raise your hand if you prefer Augustine. Okay, well, I guess Augustine is is a more popular name. Uh, Someone said, Augustine is a city in Florida. Augustine is this figure. Um, But you're looking at like a debate between uh, Sinclair Ferguson saying it's Augustine and Derek Thomas saying it's Augustine. So Augustine is raised by a secular father and a devout Christian mother. His father's name is Patrick, his mother's name is Monica, and his mother fervently prayed for his conversion and followed him around in his life as he moved from place to place, praying for, longing for, hoping for his conversion. Uh, Some called her the first helicopter mom and um, just like hoping to influence him for Christ. He was not a godly man. He was particularly uh, a rough character, an evil man who would steal things just for the thrill of stealing. He was a very immoral man as well, and so this definitely broke his mother's heart. He moved from Carthage to Rome in 374. Then he moved from Rome to Milan in 384 at the age of 30. And the reason for the move was to teach speech or rhetoric. And there in Milan, he encountered Ambrose. He heard his preaching and because of that began to study the Bible. Uh, the consequence of studying the Bible and interaction with Ambrose. And Ambrose was not just a preacher. He was also a shepherd, a pastor. He was kind in his relations with Augustine. Uh, he, he had care for him, not just Barking sermons at him, but actually interacting with him like a real human being, and that made quite an impression on him, and eventually Augustine was converted in a garden after hearing the words from a small child, probably on the other side of a fence, saying "Tola lego," meaning pick it up, pick it up and read. And so apparently he had a Bible handy. So he picks up the Bible and turns it open to wherever the where, where it falls open and sticks his finger on the page, and there he is on Romans thirteen thirteen, which says, "Let us not uh, let us uh, walk honestly as in the day, not in rioting and drunkenness, and other things which I didn't write down in my notes." But he reads this and is terribly convicted and recognizes his need for Christ, and so he is converted as a result of this. Uh, he wrote his most famous book, Confessions," which is his biography, but it 's it 's sort of a theological biography or a spiritual interpretation of his life, written to cover roughly ages zero or one to age thirty five uh, He would eventually move to Hippo, northern Africa, a country we would today call Algeria, and his writings would become incredibly influential both in the development of what we would call the Roman Catholic Church and the Protestant church, uh, roughly a thousand years later. So the Catholics would look to him for their ecclesiology, the way of doing church, and Protestants, broadly speaking, would look to him for their way of salvation, for teaching related to soteriology. So we are not as crazy about Augustine's teaching related to how to do church, but we view him as helpful in soteriology. Um Moving on to Pope Gregory the Great, who was from five forty to six o four Martin Luther and others regarded Pope Gregory as the first Pope as the start of the Roman Catholic Church, and all of the popes before him were not popes in the same way that Gregory was a Pope. Um, he was born to a wealthy family, became governor of Rome before he became the Bishop of Rome. So he was involved in politics before in religion. He became a monk, and then he reluctantly became the Pope in 590 until his death on March 12th in 604. Um, My notes on my iPad say until his dead, but I'm glad that the slides say until his death because that's much better than saying until his dead. Um, Where are we? Let's see. Council of Trent. Trent. Now we got to fast forward a 1,000 years. See, there's a problem in this whole situation up to this point, up until 1569. With each pope and within each church, frankly, from city to city or area to area, um, there's a bit of a range of beliefs. And you encounter that as well with our Summer of Heresy series. There's a lot of different views about different things. Because the Catholic Church at this point doesn't have a a confession of faith. I mean, sure, they have their their creeds, but a creed that fits on one piece of paper, this creed is so wide you could drive a truck through it. It's not terribly helpful for actually answering a lot of very important questions. So, because of that... um, they called the Council of Trent in 1569 to officially codify Roman Catholic doctrine, and the result of that was to pronounce Protestantism, specifically the doctrine of justification by faith, anathema, or to say, curses on those who hold to these things. You're going to hell if you believe in justification by faith. That's the effective outcome of the Council of Trent. So, this leads us up into the post-Reformation era But let's start with the magisterial reformers. Before I was studying this, I thought a magisterial reformer was like a majestic reformer. But that's not what that's referring to. It's referring to the magistrate. So, the magisterial reformers refer to what what I would call the big three, these are state church systems that rose up in the shadow of the Roman Catholic Church in which the blending of the church and state was thoroughly blended or thoroughly integrated. So these three are Lutheranism, the Reformed Church, and the Anglican Church. These all naturally embraced this same church-state blend that existed in their regions before they came about. This is all in Europe. Europe was almost completely Catholic. So, these magisterial reformers rising up from that same soil are embracing the same concepts of church and state relations that already existed. So, let's consider first Lutheranism. Lutheranism dates uh, points to Martin Luther for its origin. Martin Luther is a German Augustinian monk in the Roman Catholic Church. He was Absolutely devout. He was an incredibly committed monk. um, Committed to his monkery. Committed to his vows. He was famous for his lengthy confessionals. At times, he was told by the priest to go actually do something sinful and then come back and tell him about it because the priest was growing weary from his scrupulous self-examination. He would sit there in the confessional booth confessing for hours, giving sin after sin after sin after sin. And then confessing the sin that he can't remember his sins. And the priest was like, This is ridiculous. Leave. Like, just run along. Go do something bad, then tell me about it. Luther said, if I was, I was a good monk and I kept the rule of my order so strictly that I may say that if ever a monk got to heaven by his monkery, it was I, all my brothers in the monastery who knew me will bear this out. If I had kept on any longer, I should have killed myself with vigils, prayers, readings and other work. It's important to understand that, to understand that that's his frame of mind. That's where he was in in the, the time leading up to the reformation. Luther is sort of a representative of the entirety of the church and and what had been built up. Every human on the planet, or every human in Europe anyway, at this point, they are feeling the weight of the Catholic system like a boot on their neck. It's suffocating them. It's exhausting them. It's destroying them. If I had kept on any longer, I should have killed myself with vigils, prayers, reading, and other work. Luther wrote his 95 thesis and nailed it to the town bulletin board, which is the door of the Wittenberg Castle on October 31st, 1517, while, according to some scholars, he was still unconverted. I didn't realize this was as debated as it is, which I found out this afternoon, I was like looking, what what was his date? And some of them are dating it to his conversion to before 1517. And then others are dating it to after 1517. The rationale for dating his conversion after 1517 is that he hadn't really, he hadn't really studied Galatians that much. He hadn't written his commentary on Galatians. He didn't seem to have as strong of a grasp on the doctrine of justification But those who would date his conversion to 1516 do so because he started um, teaching on the book of Romans in 1516, and he clearly started understanding things. The the wheels were moving in his his conversion at this point, uh, for sure. So, I'm not sure exactly when he was converted, but um, regardless, he was still doing big things by nailing these theses to the door of the Castle, which is the town bulletin board. These 95 theses are basically 95 grievances calling for a debate on these points. Uh, I encourage you to look that up on your own and read them. They're very interesting. Um, the result of all of this is he's called to a... Um, the, the term is the, the Diet of Worms or the Diet of Worms, but this is basically a, a council or a debate. He was called by Charles V, the Holy Roman Emperor... To answer for writing some books which have contradicted the teaching of the Roman Catholic Church. So they call him in for a trial, effectively. They say, Why have you written these things? Have you written these? Are these yours? Do you stand by them? Do you defend them? And he said, Well, yes, I wrote these books. The emperor Emperor asked him to recant or to deny, to, to repent from the things that he had written. And Luther said, I need to think about it. Give me till tomorrow. So he returned the next day, and he made the following very, very famous statement. He said, "Unless I can be instructed and convinced with evidence from the holy scriptures, or with open, clear, and distinct grounds and reason, and my conscience is captive to the word of God." Then I cannot and will not recant, because it is neither safe nor wise to act against my conscience. Here I stand. I can do no other. God help me. Amen. So he tells the Pope, no, I'm not going to do that. On his way out, as he leaves this trial, effectively, Luther's friends kidnap him and put him in hiding. So imagine you walk out the door of the church and someone throws a bag over your head and you don't even realize who it is and then you, you get thrown into the trunk of a car and you think you're being killed. You think that it's over, like it was a good run Andy's days are done. But then the car stops moving and people open up the trunk and they pull a bag off your head and it's your best friend. He's like, hey, so glad you're here. We saved you. Now we're locking you in a castle. And that's what they did. So they locked him up in the uh, Wartburg, I don't know how to say it, the castle, and he would continue writing and translating the Bible into the German language. Um, His translation of the Bible was was massive for the German people. It defined the German language. It It functioned almost like a dictionary of sorts where it's like, this is the way we spell the words that we have. And that Bible translation would be used for for 500 years. Um, Moving on. After the first Magisterial Reformer, Martin Luther, we want to talk about John Calvin. He is famous for a thing we call Calvinism. Um, Though there is, again, very legitimate scholarly debate about whether or not Calvin was a Calvinist. Um, a friend of mine wrote his dissertation, trying to debunk the idea that Calvin was a five point Calvinist that Calvin was actually a four point calvinist that 's what he did his dissertation on at Southwestern Seminary. Um, regardless whether or not Calvin was a five pointer or four four pointer it doesn 't matter. The Bible still teaches five point Calvinism, so we can carry on as our card carrying Calvinists. He's born in Picardy, France, and he dies in Geneva. Uh, he wrote his institutes, published in 1536 at age 27. So if you, raise your hand if you're 27 or older, OK, what have you been doing with your life? Um, so he writes this book that's one of the most influential theological books in history, by the age of 27. Um, this is astounding to think about. They would they would sell out and run multiple printings and revisions, and it, it's just staggering that he wrote this at such a young age. His background training is as a lawyer, and he left the Roman Catholic Church uh, around 1530 when he would have been roughly 21 years old. He left France due to war and violence and persecution against the Protestants, and then he moved to Basel, Switzerland. For those who are into the, quote, fight-by-flight methodology, and they would say, ha, look, Calvin left France. And I would say, yeah, he left France due to war, violence, and persecution. Not for taxes that are 3% lower. Um, There was actually risk to his life, and so because of that, he moved for physical safety. Later on, William Farrell recruited him to move from Basel, Switzerland, to Geneva to help with the Reformation that William Farrell was working on there in Geneva. Uh, then the men were kicked out of Geneva, and Martin Bucer re- invited them, recruited them to Strasbourg in 1538. Strasbourg is a border town on the border of France and Germany. And then in 1541, after three years, they are invited to come back to Geneva, and they did so. Calvin would bring. Uh, he would bring about various reforms in the church in Geneva, including the following. Uh, this is a structural change to the church, and that is he believed in and taught four offices, so the office of pastor, doctor, elder, and deacon. As Baptists, we recognize two offices, that of pastor, elder, overseer, and Deacon We don't really have the office of doctor, a doctor of the church, um, but the pastor is quite obviously a pastor, shepherd, preacher, uh, one who cares for souls. The doctor in this framework, the doctor is a teacher, sort of like an academic theologian, uh, involved in pastoral training, involved in, in that type of education. and then the elder uh, elders were charged with looking after matters of church discipline. And then the deacons were deacons uh, looking after physical needs and and practical matters. Uh, So that's the way Calvin's pastoral office and and ministry was was set up. Um, There's this issue about Michael Servetus. If you have ever encountered a cage-stage Arminian— Cage stage refers to someone who is brand new to a particular set of views. And after because of that, now they're really aggressive about it. Cage stage is not, uh, it's most commonly referred to in cage stage Calvinism, but you can have a cage stage Arminian. You can have a cage stage vegan. You can have a cage stage CrossFitter, someone who's like, oh, I just started this thing yesterday and you need to, too. You don't want to die, do you? So you need to stop eating all of those whatever GMOs or. Meat or anything. Um, so, cage stage Arminians, Arminianism is sort of the arch nemesis of Calvinism. The Arminians would say, Oh, but Michael Servetus. So, I want you to hear about Michael Servetus if you, if you don't already know. Well, raise your hand if you already know about Servetus. Okay, great. Two of you know. I assume that means the rest of you don't. Servetus was a heretic and he was executed in 1553. There. Now you all know. We can move on, right? There's more to the story. Um, Calvin is famously involved in overseeing the execution of Servetus. And people are like, look, see, Calvin is evil. Well, it's more complicated than that. I will say this is a big part of why I'm a Baptist and convinced that being Baptist is better than not being a Baptist. But um, in this Topic, which broadly speaking, we're still talking about the magisterial reformers, which are ones who have this blending of church and state. And so in the magisterial reformation, they're reforming the magistrate as well reforming the government from being a Roman Catholic-controlled government to being a Protestant-controlled government. But nevertheless, there's still a merging of church and state. So to be a heretic not only makes you outside of the church, it also makes you at odds with the government because the government has its religious laws as well. So this guy Servetus, he wasn't just like a random Guy Just sort of minding his own business, walking down the street, holding to heretical views. No, he was a particularly ornery promoter of heresies, and he liked to stir the pot, and he held to a number of heresies, including a Trinitarian heresy, denying the Trinity and calling for debates and trying to push these heretical views. And he was, if I remember right, he was warned not to come to Geneva because if he did come to Geneva, he would be prosecuted and executed. And he was like, well, I'm going to come there anyway. So he goes there anyway, and then he's arrested all while trying to propagate his views. And if I remember right, Calvin goes to him and like urges him to repent of his heretical views and he stands his ground. And so he's condemned in this, this theology trial basically, but Calvin did advocate for a less torturous form of execution. I don't remember what it was, but Calvin was like, Hey, let's, let's go easy on him instead of like, you know, putting him on the racks first and stretching him. Um, So yes, Servetus was executed and Calvin was involved in the process, but it's not, As barbaric as some would try to make it sound. Nevertheless, um, I'm glad to be a Baptist because I think that our mission as Christians is the conversion of heretics, not the execution of of heretics. Uh, This is also part of why the Baptist movement is not under this point, this point of the lesson that we're on, and we're still under the magisterial reformers. So um, we'll get into Baptist thought in a few moments. Um, In his ministry, I didn't want to just end on Servetus, so we're going to go back to some positive things. Calvin focused heavily on pastoral training, uh, sending church planners, sending missionaries all across Europe, sending them into places that are, frankly, very dangerous, um, sending them even into war zones. And he founded the College of Geneva as a pastor's training college. Um, It's been renamed now to something like Calvin College or something, but it's, it's not the one here in the U.S. Um, the third major category to consider is Anglicanism. Anglicanism. The theologian to, to right next to it is Thomas Cranmer, who's from 1489 to 1556, though he is not the head of the church or the one who started it. It was actually Henry VIII. No matter what the Anglicans may say, it was Henry VIII. That's what the history books tell us. And revisionist history is not okay. So Henry VIII founds the church. Why? Well, because he wanted to divorce his wife. The reason for that was because she was unable to provide him with a male heir. Now, I don't remember. I'm not doing an entire lesson tonight just on Henry VIII, so I didn't have the luxury of studying exclusively Henry VIII. But I, part of me wonders, like, was this whole infertility problem actually him? Because, well, I, well no, it. He was, yeah, they were able to have female offspring, but nevertheless, it could still be his fault. Um, anyway, he, he marries all these women, and then when they can't have a boy, he kills them. So he does this multiple times, and um, he wanted to marry Anne Boleyn, but instead he's married to Catherine of Aragon, and he wants to divorce Catherine, and the Pope says no. Oh, by the way, fun fact he wanted to marry Anne Boleyn. Anne Boleyn is the step-great-granddaughter of my second cousin, 20 times removed. So the Pope tells him no. <laughs> um, and so he says, well, fine, I'm the Pope now. I'm I'm the new head of the church, and I say yes. And I'm going to find someone else and make him the head of the church and make him the my new pastor, and he will say yes because well, we have ways of making people agree with me. So he pronounces himself the head of the church, the new church, the Church of England, and then he brought Thomas Cranmer in to be the theological mind behind the new church that he had just founded and names Thomas Cranmer the Archbishop of Canterbury. Cranmer was not all bad. He did a lot of good things, too, in addition to, or beyond just um, being the the, the guy who goes along with Henry VIII. Um, He wrote the Book of Common Prayer, which is not a bad document, and he wrote the 39 articles, which, again, not a bad document. Plenty of things in there which I would disagree with, why I'm Baptist, not Anglican. But as far as Protestant documents go, they were very important documents. And Cranmer led the Church of England, or the Anglican Church, which, by the way, if you're wondering what the difference is between the Anglican Church and the Church of England, it's the same thing. Uh, here in the U.S., we call it Episcopalianism, but the uh, those names refer to uh, the same thing. And so he led the Church of England as a Reformation-oriented church against the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, During Mary I's reign, Mary was also known as Bloody Mary. Uh, She was Catholic, very staunchly Catholic. Uh, She had uh, Thomas Cranmer burned at the stake. This is two monarchs later. So you've got um, Henry VIII, um, what, Edward VI or something, and then after that, Bloody Mary. So... He goes from being this influential theological mind, this influential leader, part you know leading the Church of England to then being killed by the new queen uh, two leaders later. She had him burned at the stake, and during his imprisonment, he recanted of his Protestant beliefs. She was pressuring him. Again, I have mixed views on this Thomas Cranmer guy. Like, He seems like an opportunist. He seems not to have the best ethics. But then he also writes a solid document. But then under pressure, he says, oh, I deny it all. I'll go back to being a Catholic in an attempt to avoid being burned at the stake. But Mary demanded that he be burned anyway. So on the day that he was burned, he repented of his repenting. He recanted of his recanting of his Protestant beliefs, and he goes back to his Protestant beliefs since he's like, hey, I'm going to be killed anyway. I might as well die believing in Protestantism. So, story goes that when the fire began to burn there at his feet, he sticks his hand down into the flame which he had used to betray Christ, and he burned his hand first. He burned his right hand clean to the bone before he died by the flames. Um, During many major events over the next hundred plus years, the Anglican church would become this extreme mix between different types of churches, some being more Protestant and some being more Catholic or Anglo-Catholic. And then in the centuries that would follow this additional flavor, which is the wildly liberal type of churches where, you know, they have the rainbow flags on the front. You see them all across New York with Episcopalian churches. Um, the Anglican church, even conservative ones are famous for their ability to be unclear about their beliefs and practices. Uh, they even have a Latin term for it, which is via media, which is middle way. Um, so they're like, Hey, you're a heretic and you're a Protestant and you're a liberal and you're a Catholic and we'll all just be together in this, in this church. And then you ask, well, what do you believe? And then the, preacher starts getting really squirrely about it. Well, that still happens today, and it still happens today in New York City. A church that is supposedly conservative, supposedly Calvinistic, that has a lesbian intern, that has a lesbian bishop preach in their pulpit and posts about it very positively and favorably on Instagram. And that priest or the rector, the one who's in charge of that church, is still then going and speaking at conservative Reformed conferences, and they're like, yeah, he's a conservative. Isn't it wonderful that this historic church in New York City has a Christian pastor who is Reformed and conservative and all those things? But it's not just what he personally believes in some sort of highly uh, nuanced way, but it's also what this man allows. Or what he endorses. Anyway, moving on. Presbyterianism. The third thing to consider is, or fourth, wait. Okay, we've moved on from our three magisterial reformers, uh, reformed churches, to now considering more post-reformed, or post-reformation churches. So there's Presbyterianism. Where does Presbyterianism come from? This is a great question as I was thinking about these things because if you've got John Calvin and the Reformed Church on the continent of Europe and you have the Dutch Reformed going on a little further north, but you have the Presbyterians, which in the modern world consider themselves the truly Reformed, um, they're coming out of the Westminster Assembly. But what is the Westminster Assembly? Because I thought, well, Westminster is clearly in England. We've got the Church of England. Why do we need Westminster Assembly? Why do we need a Presbyterian church if you have the Anglican church? Well, I'm glad that you asked. I was wondering the same thing, and I don't have a terribly satisfying answer. So if there are Presbyterian historians watching this, I'm very sorry for this hacked job of history of Presbyterianism that you're about to hear. But this is the best I've got, given the time allowed. Presbyterianism comes from a blending of the influence of John Calvin and John Knox, The Reformed Church of Geneva, the Church of Scotland, John Knox, the Lion of Scotland, the hero of Scotland, the one who said, give me Scotland or I die. That man and his thought, the Church of Scotland, combined with the influences of Calvin. Now, there's more to it than that. It's also combining the influence of Anglicanism and Puritanism. And it's a result of the development of the English Reformation, the things we've just talked about, King Henry VIII, and a bunch of other rulers and leaders and theologians and politicians. It also is a result of the movement, the consequent movement, known as Puritanism. So you have the English Reformation in the 1500s, and then you have the Puritan movement, which effectively covers the entire 1600s. And then here we have, in the middle of all of that, Presbyterianism coming out. It is an effort to further refine and further purify the Church of England. During the Puritan and Nonconformist era, which was birthed out of the English Reformation, this there was a notoriously messy blend of various types of church government. There's the Episcopalian form. Episcopalian, not is it's not just Anglican, but it's also Roman Catholic and other types, where there's a bishop or there's a pope, there's a, a leader who's the overseer over a network of churches. But then there's also the Congregationalist churches, where a church is its own group of self-governing people. There's also the Fledgling Baptist movement beginning, which we'll talk about in a moment. And there's a lot of cults, all sorts of cults. There's even Mennonites. You're like, wait, I thought Mennonites were like in Amish country in Pennsylvania. Yeah, well, they started over in Europe 100 years prior. So, the result of this is they're trying to write a standardized confession to help bring more people along. The Puritans said that the Church of England was still much too Catholic. Even the Book of Common Prayer, the 39 articles, they're saying that is, that's better. It's better than Catholicism, but it's still very Catholic, not nearly Protestant enough. So, they called this assembly, the assembly known as the Westminster Assembly. They started that assembly by considering and evaluating this document written by Thomas Cranmer, the guy with the hand that he burned in the fire. So they start by evaluating and considering the 39 articles. The 39 articles is the 39 articles of the Anglican church, their confession of faith, their statement of faith. It's these 35 paragraphs. So they said, we are going to prove or disprove each of these articles from the Bible. So, this Westminster Assembly is doing that. They're analyzing these 39 articles. Now, who assembled in the Westminster Assembly? It was, well, it it lasted roughly 10 years, and there were 121 clergy, 30 laymen. Of those 30, I think 10 were nobility and 20 were normal people. And then there were six men from the Church of Scotland. A few famous attendees at the Westminster Assembly. But when I say famous, I mean people that I've heard of before. I'm not sure that you've heard of them, but like, these are names I recognize, and that would be Thomas Goodwin. Thomas Goodwin was a Puritan author. He was an independent. He was not Anglican. He was not um, in these other groups. He was an independent pastor. And he was a chaplain for Oliver Cromwell, the leader of the British Army. Second is William Goug. Uh He's an Anglican pastor. The third famous attendee to mention is James Usher, or Archbishop Usher, who is the Archbishop of Armagh, which this man is Archbishop of Ireland. So he was the religious leader of the entire country of Ireland, and he came to this. Just So to help you understand, I, I say this to help you understand, this is a big deal. This gathering, these are the best and brightest from multiple countries that have come together to write this document. Uh, Samuel Rutherford is a leader in the Church of Scotland. This is relevant for those who are observing some of the the Christian nationalist debate because people who like the Puritans know of Samuel Rutherford. I quote Samuel Rutherford every now and then in sermons. There's a a saying, um, he said, I I feel as though I'm holding on by a a thread but it is a thread of Christ's spinning. Samuel Rutherford. You're like, oh, that's so nice. Yeah, it is nice. But Samuel Rutherford is also part of the Church of Scotland. And Samuel Rutherford then has this idea of this complete blending of church and state. The idea that the church leaders and the state leaders are kind of one, or they're linked together. So if you hear someone wanting to bring in Samuel Rutherford's thought as, hey, we need to do this in America, um, just understand that that's some of the background of, of of why they're thinking that way. Also, if they're wanting to pull in more thought leaders, there's a lot of people who think that way from church history. Like that was the standard view until basically, until the Baptist movement came along and said, we, we, we actually need to separate these. We need to have a separation of powers and a separation of church and state. Um, what came out of this assembly is the Westminster Confession and the larger and shorter Catechism. Westminster Confession then is used to write two other confessions, the Savoy Declaration and the 1689 Second London Baptist Confession. So the Savoy Declaration is the standard confession for the Congregationalist churches, and the 1689 then is the confession for the Baptist churches, particularly the particular Baptist churches. Moving on, the early Baptists. Um... Just a couple principles. We talk about this pretty regularly in other, um, other places and times, but um, the early Baptists are founded. The, the early Baptists are men who have come out of the Church of England. They're basically ex-Anglicans, and that's, that's their background. That's what's going on at the time of the writing of their documents, and because of that, they're huge advocates for religious liberty freedom of conscience, that you don't have to be an Anglican. You don't have to be a Baptist. We're not going to throw you in jail if you're not reformed. We're not going to throw you in jail if you're an Arminian. We're not here to kill people. We're here to convert people. We're here to persuade people. We're here to proselytize and, and evangelize. We're here to disciple people. So a big part of that then is the separation of church and state. Which is a Baptist distinctive. Uh, two famous early, early Baptist leaders. I mean, we're talking almost a hundred years. Well, born over a hundred years before the writing of the confession. But John Smith, spelled with a Y, he left the Church of England in 1607. He baptized himself in 1609 because he he's studying the Bible and he recognizes the infant baptism, particularly sprinkling infant, infant baptism is not biblical. It's not found in the Bible anywhere. He studied it. He can't find it. But what they do have is believers being dunked. The problem is he can't find anybody who's willing to dunk him. Nobody. There's not a single person on the planet who's, who's willing to do this, at least that he could find. So how is he supposed to do this? Because he believes this is a command of Christ to be baptized. And the word baptized, well, it means to dunk. So who's going to baptize me? Well, I can't find anyone, so I'll do it myself. So he baptizes himself. And then he baptized the rest of his church. And Thomas Helwes, the next guy, was his first baptizee. Thomas Helwes is also one of the leaders of this church along with him. And uh, it's also important to know that both of these men are general Baptists, which is Arminian Uh, So, they're not Reformed or particular Baptists, but they are Arminian Baptists. And um, Helwes would later be imprisoned by King James I. They and their church had a lot of problems, both theological problems and practical problems, because of this. Remember, we're talking early 1600s. These men died in 1612 and 1616. So, we're still talking like, what, 65 years before the Second London Confession is written. So, these people are trying to do church without a confession of faith. They're trying to do church that's not Anglican without using the Book of Common Prayer and the 39 Articles. So, yeah, things are like a little unstable or perhaps a lot unstable. Because what if, if your church is built on a thing binding you together that is, we are not that, you're going to have some instability. If you don't have a positive vision of what you are, you can say, okay, well, we are Baptist. Okay. That's great. But how, how much further is that going to take you beyond the, the moment of your baptism? So they had a lot of problems in their church. And, um, I believe John Smith would later leave and, and go back to saying that it wasn't right for him to baptize himself. And so he, um, repented of that. Um, they lost a lot of people to the Mennonites and they were Arminians Next, on a more positive note, let's consider William Kiffin, who was born in 1616 and died in 1701, Uh, one of the great heroes of the Baptist movement that, until recent years, was almost completely unknown. So, raise your hand if you've heard of this guy before this. Nobody? Okay. So, William Kiffin, um, a hero of mine. I think he's really cool. I like him a lot. You all have been influenced by him because this church has been influenced by him because of the way we do the way we do communion. So I studied his writings during seminary, the result of which was becoming convinced of the not open communion position or close, closed, whatever you want to call it, but we'll get into that in a moment. So William Kiffin, his parents died in a plague and he was incredibly sick, but God mercifully preserved him around age nine from dying at this plague. He's converted at age 18 and joins a Baptist church church, uh, and then he begins to preach begins to preach shortly after that he 's arrested for preaching and then is called to be a pastor around age twenty one and remained as a pastor of the same church for sixty one years so that 's cool uh, i don 't't rem- yeah i didn 't write down the name of his church and i don 't remember it right now but he he pastored this one church for sixty one years um, He traveled quite a bit. He was in Holland for some time, and while in Holland, he enters into the wool trade. Now, how was he in Holland while pastoring a church in England for 61 consecutive years? I'm not sure. I'm not sure what happened. Did the entire church just be like, hey, we're going to go hide in Holland because there's too much persecution here in England? That's entirely possible because entire congregations would do stuff like that back at this time because there was such extreme persecution during this Era, which is kind of the English Civil War, and this time of of um, you know Bloody Mary and various um, horrible rulers. Um, so he he goes to Holland and gets connected to the wool trade and uh, enters into the shipping business, and he became incredibly wealthy through this. He got a monopoly with. The British government for some kind of a shipping contract or the building of ships and the wool used to make the sails on these ships. So he had an exclusive contract. So they're only doing business with him. So every single ship, and this is like, you've heard of imperialism, like well, all those boats that they use to conquer, all those sails that they put on those boats. They purchased from him. So this man became insanely wealthy. He was personally more wealthy than many small countries. His wealth, he was a multi-billionaire. His wealth was on par with someone like Bill Gates or Elon Musk. So he would have been one of the wealthiest men in the world at the time. And he used his wealth to help imprison pastors. Uh, There's a a couple famous stories. Um, One is of him uh, going into a, a... basically like a trial for this, this pastor who's about to be executed. And he like throws down a pile of, a sack of gold and buys the guy's pardon to just get him out of jail with money. Um, King Charles II was King at the time and he was apparently constantly out of money, always broke. And he was in debt, $250 million. And, um, this King, King Charles really liked William Kiffin. Did he actually like him or he just wanted what William Kiffin had? I'm not sure, but he asked William Kiffin to loan him 40,000 pounds, which one historian said is the equivalent of $400,000 today. That I don't think that's right. I think it's impossible that that's impossible that the conversion rate is that low because we're talking 400 years ago. I, I would think that it'd be much, much more money today, but nevertheless... He asked for a loan of 40,000 pounds, and Kiffin refused, but instead insisted on giving him a gift. And that gift was 10,000 pounds. So he asked for 40. He said, no, 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 I'm not going to loan you 40,000 pounds, but I'll just give you 10. And he went away laughing, telling his friends about it, saying, oh, look, I saved 30,000 pounds, and I kept my head on my body, uh, because he recognized that this this king is not going to repay this loan. And he doesn't want to offend him, because while he might be wealthy, he's not royalty, and the king is royalty, but he's not wealthy. So, um, another thing to mention is the Great Ejection. The Great Ejection took place in 1662, August 24th of 1662. So, this is right smack in the middle of his life, born in 1660, dying in 1701, And the great ejection was when pastors who refused to conform to the Book of Common Prayer, which there were a lot of them, some 2,000, or 2,000 of these pastors were kicked out of their churches. These men were then called the nonconformists because they did not conform to the Book of Common Prayer. Now, they weren't just kicked out of their churches, they're also kicked out of their homes because their homes were in the churches. Sort of like this building or many other churches across New York City have apartments in the upper part of the building, and that's where the pastor lives. So if the pastor gets kicked out or gets fired or whatever, now he's suddenly homeless. So it was quite costly for these pastors to refuse to conform. This is all part of the danger of a state church system when the government controls the church. When they can say, your pastor's fired when the government is paying the salary of the pastors. Uh, There's a book called Sermons of the Great Ejection, which are, uh, I think, 10 or so sermons that were preached on this August 24th, the last sermons preached in these churches by these pastors. Um, After this great ejection, William Kiffin appealed to King Charles II to stop the execution of 12 people who were nonconformists, not even leaders, just lay people, Twelve nonconformist lay people who were scheduled for execution. Kiffin goes to King Charles and employs him or implores him, begs him not to kill these twelve, and the king listens. William Kiffin was also a man who suffered much tragedy. He had three children; all three died during his lifetime. They say, "Well, you know, children are supposed to outlive their parents. Parents should not be burying their children." Well, he buried all three of his children. Uh, he buried his first wife, Hannah. She also, she, she died before him. And then he remarried. He married a woman named Sarah, who ended up, who turned out not to be a believer. She professed to be a Christian at the beginning. I'm sure it would be foolish to marry someone who's like, oh, I'm not a Christian. He's a pastor. So he certainly married a professing Christian. But she rejected Christ, embraced heresy, left him, and then stole a lot of money from him. And this is all going down when he's like 80-some years old. So she's looking at this through the lens of Gold Digger, one of the wealthiest men in the world. Oh, yeah, I'm a Christian. Lures him in, then says, actually, I'm not a Christian anymore. By the way, where's that gold? So she was brought up on church discipline charges at his church and kicked out of the church, excommunicated for charges of heresy and financial scandal slash stealing. And just imagine the heartbreak of this, like you as a pastor, 61 years in this church, you're in your like 58 or something, by the way, props to them. Cause I, I was looking at the numbers of all this and the, the sequence of it. They didn't blame him for it. Do you know how many churches would go through something like that and not blame him? Not that many. Cause at least in our modern world today, it's like, well, it's always the man's fault no matter what, but they had the, the character to look at the situation and say, no, she's responsible for her actions and she will be charged and we're not going to get rid of him. Another tragedy that he suffered was that his two grandsons were also, uh, they also died during his life. They were hung to death for their participation in the Monmouth rebellion and the, uh, the Battle of Sedgemoor in 1685. So, in England, there was a um, English Civil War. The English Civil War took place in like the 1630s to the 50s, roughly. But there is still this this conflict going on. In uh, that is the the Monmouth Rebellion, which was effectively a battle for li- religious liberty. There were a number of people who were not happy about the the Catholic um, kings and queens. And, um, particularly James II, who was Catholic, who came after Charles II, Charles II being the king who was friendly with William Kiffin. And we kind of cooperate with him and work with him, But then James II comes in and he is not so, um, either kind or motivated by money. And, um, so James II comes down really hard saying, we're not doing this freedom stuff that we used to be doing. Um, so, William Kiffin's two grandsons joined this militia. They joined this this rebellion unit, basically, and participated in a battle in which they lost, and then they were hung. Now, Kiffin appealed to James II on their behalf. He begged him. He offers, like, hey, I'll, I'll pay for their pardon. I'll, you know, let's work a deal here. And King James II basically said, you're lucky to make it out of this room alive for yourself much less your grandsons, so get out of here. I'm not gonna not gonna let them off. So his two grandsons were also killed. Uh, another important early Baptist to know about is John Bunyan. John Bunyan is uh, roughly a contemporary of William Kiffen. Uh, actually he was very much a contemporary. His entire life was during William Kiffin's lifespan. And he was not a pastor by training, but he was a tinker. A tinker is a pot repairman. So you've got like copper pots and your pot starts to rust or gets a hole in it or you drop it. It's dented. It's cracked, whatever. You need someone to fix it. Well, the person who would fix it would be John Bunyan as a pot repairman. And he was a common man. He's an ordinary fellow. He's not from the aristocracy. He's not from the the poorest of the poor. He's just a a middle class type of guy uh, as a commoner. He was a nonconformist and he was ejected. He was, he was um, on the outskirts of the approved religion. He was actually imprisoned for 12 years for his illegal preaching from 1660 to 1672. He is the author of the most famous book in world history besides the Bible. The Bible is the number one selling book in the history of the English language. The second top selling book in English language literature history is Pilgrim's Progress. He wrote that while in jail. Uh, He's also known for the communion controversy, which you probably, I'm guessing, haven't heard of since you hadn't heard of William Kiffin, but there's a big controversy between William Kiffin and John Bunyan about the issue of communion, which is why I said a few minutes ago that you all have been influenced by William Kiffin, whether you realize it or not. This communion controversy was, in effect, the difference between open communion and closed communion. Bunyan was an open guy. He's like, okay, well, y'all come. Anyone and everyone, you can take communion here. If you're welcome in heaven, you're welcome at this Lord's table. Kiffin says, hang on a second. Let's, let's slow down. Let's back back the truck up a little bit. What is a Christian? Well, in the Bible, a Christian is someone who's baptized, believes, and is baptized, If someone believes but isn't baptized, well, that person, apart from the thief on the cross, that person doesn't exist. They're not in the New Testament. There is no Christian who refuses baptism in the Bible. Everyone who believes is baptized. Because your baptism is actually your profession of faith. It's tied up in this Romans 10 situation where it says, you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. And that happens not at an altar call, but that happens at your dunking. When you, get, when you get immersed, when you are baptized, that's when you're professing Jesus is Lord. That was the way that the church had done these things. Until John Bunyan comes along and says, ah, nah, we don't need to worry about that stuff. Too much, too detailed, too exclusive. Too, you're turning people away. Kiffin says, no, you need to be baptized as a believer. And so they have this huge... This huge controversy. What I've just talked about is their baptism controversy, but we're actually under the heading of communion controversy. So the same thing applies to that. The question is, who is is eligible to take communion? Kiffin says it's only Christians. And if you're not baptized, you're not a Christian. Sure, you might go to heaven, but what we call you... We don't call you a Christian until you've called yourself a Christian. And the way that happens is through baptism. And so no one should be taking communion who hasn't been baptized. So that was the the thought process that, that Kiffin, um, had. And Bunyan said, whatever, like, we're not, we're not dealing with that. Anyone should be taking this. Um, so you have the open communion versus closed communion as well as open membership versus closed membership. You have to be baptized to be a member of the church versus you don't need to be baptized. You can just come and you can join the church. You can be an unbaptized member of the church. Now, the question is, why does believer's baptism matter if we don't stand for believer's baptism? There's a lot of people like John Bunyan who would say, Oh, I'm a Baptist. I believe in believer's baptism, but they don't insist upon it. We're a Baptist church, but we don't make you be baptized to join. If that's your approach, why does believer's baptism matter at all? Remember where we are in history right now. We're still in the 1600s. We're coming off the Great Ejection, where 2,000 pastors have been kicked out of their homes. We're a hundred years after Bloody Mary, where Bloody Mary is burning people at the stake for not doing what she told them to do religiously. The Baptists have suffered horrifically over this issue of baptism. There are men in jail over the issue of baptism. So if you're going to come out of that whole context and say, you know what, baptism doesn't really matter, it would be logical to conclude you're not actually a Baptist. You don't hold this conviction. You might have it in some preferential way to say, well, it's, it's my preferred thing, but I don't really believe it in that sense. Now, there is a consequence to th- these ideas. The consequence of these ideas is that, number one, John Bunyan's church doesn't exist anymore, and William Kiffin's church does. William Kiffin's church still preaches the gospel because they had a regenerate membership. John Bunyan's church didn't really care about those things. Their membership membership role, the membership roster wasn't carefully guarded to ensure that in order to come into the membership of this church, you have to have a credible profession of faith. You have to be baptized as a believer. You can't take communion unless you have a credible profession of faith and you've been baptized as a believer. So the way Kiffin did these things literally is the exact same way we do them here, which is where I got the idea for setting these things up here. It was from reading these documents, which I had to read in seminary part of why seminary is helpful. Because before I took those classes, I was literally like y'all saying, I've never heard of that guy before. Much less thought about these issues. Oh, uh, People consider John Bunyan to be Mr. Baptist, but the reality was he's barely Baptist at all. William Kiffin was Mr. Baptist. William Kiffin was the guy who was standing on these convictions. And William Kiffin was one of the, just a handful of men who were involved in writing the actual Confessions of Faith that made up the First London Confession and the Second London Confession. Now, let's talk very briefly about particular Baptists versus general Baptists. The particular Baptists are the people that we would call Reformed Baptists. The general Baptists are people who we would call Arminian Baptists. Um, Today, here in the United States, this is all talking about England, but in the U.S. it's it's similar. There are a lot of different denominations of Baptists. So you have Southern Baptists, Northern Baptists, Um, Reformed Baptists, Particular Baptists, um, Cooperative Baptist Fellowship, um, CBF, uh, GARBC. GARBC is General Association of Regular Baptists. Uh, ABC is American Baptist Church. SBC is Southern Baptist Church. Um, ABC is the old Northern Baptists. So the Northern Baptists and Southern Baptists split in 1845 over the issue of slavery And um, at the time, the Northern Baptists took the more progressive position, which was no slavery. The Southern Baptists said, yes, slavery, and you can be a missionary and be a slaveholder, and it's fine. And so they split the convention over the issue. And then um, the Northern Baptists just kept going in a a more and more and more progressive direction. Today, um, there's a couple of, of... American Baptist churches in the city, ABC churches. Um, so you would have Madison Avenue Baptist Church, which typically has like Gandhi quotes on the sign. And then there's a Metropolitan Baptist Church over in Hell's Kitchen around 45th Street and 11th Avenue, roughly. Um, that one always has rainbow flags on the front. Uh, those, that, that's normative of the ABC. So if you find any church in the ABC in America, typically in the Northern part of America, that's what you should expect. You should expect rainbow flag, trans flag, whatever, Gandhi quotes on the front, um, Marxist fists, all sorts of things like that. It's no longer a Christian religion. It's, it's thoroughly apostate right alongside of Ep- Episcopalianism. Um, but what we're talking about right now is particular Baptists and general Baptists. So the general Baptists are Armenian, particular Baptists are not. They are particular Uh, The General Baptists here in the U.S., the General Association of Regular Baptists, Regular Baptists and General Baptists are basically the same in that Regular Baptists referring to, well, we're not particular. Now, today, the Regular Baptists are not necessarily explicitly Arminian, but they're not Reformed. They would be explicitly not Reformed in their confessions. Um, This is relevant just because it's, it's part of the background that I come from where If you are independent Baptist, you would regard Southern Baptist as too far, too liberal, too far left, but GARB, G-A-R-B-C, would be more acceptable. So you wouldn't send your young people to a Southern Baptist seminary, but you would send them to a GARB seminary, which there's one in Pennsylvania and there's one in Iowa and there's one in Virginia and there's one in Minnesota. So um, let's keep moving. First London Confession. The first London Confession of 1644 and 46. Um, It was actually written in 44, but it was kind of like published in 1646. The three men who are the likely authors of this confession are John, John Spilsbury, Samuel Richardson, and William Kiffin. The reason for their writing this is to clarify and to demonstrate that they are actually Christian. They are Orthodox Christians in the Protestant tradition, they're not a cult there's a lot of cults throughout history, a lot of false religions throughout history. So they're writing this confession uh, to demonstrate their Reformed convictions, their Protestant convictions. They also wrote this and revised it. The revision was two years later in 1646, um, to demonstrate their views of baptism and communion and the, the, the connection between those. In 1644, there were seven Baptist churches in London. And 16 years later, by 1660, they had grown to 130 churches. And this was the same time period, roughly, as the English Civil War. So there had been quite a quite a growth, an explosion of growth in this 16-year time period to go from seven Baptist churches in London to 130. Now, how did this happen? I'm not sure. I do suspect that um, William Kiffin probably helped sponsor a lot of pastors' um, church planting efforts. These men were involved in church planting for sure. Um, William Kiffin and his friends handed out copies. This reminds me of Trenton. Um, These men hand out copies of the first London Baptist Confession at the door of the Jerusalem chamber where the Westminster Divines were meeting, writing the Westminster Confession of Faith. So literally standing there at the door, be like, here, take this, take this. i got something for you to read. And it's the first London Baptist Confession of Faith, trying to convert all these Presbyterians and Scottish Presbyterians and Anglicans and Congregationalists to, to try to persuade them of Baptist convictions. Because of this, he got himself arrested because that was not smiled upon. Now, the second London Baptist Confession, which we... Call uh, shorthand 1689 it was also primarily written in 1677, but it wasn't really published or widely published until 1689. There was extreme persecution from 1660 to 1688, very severe persecution. Um, there was an act of toleration passed in 1689, which allowed religious liberty religious toleration so you didn't have to be an Anglican you didn't have to hide for fear of persecution and so when that um bill was passed through parliament that was when all these pastors came out of hiding and signed their names publicly onto the 1689 so depending on which edition of it you have some editions of the 1689 have a list of names in the front of the signers of the confession there is only one I think I think there's only one author. uh signatory, one one author who signed both the first and the second London Confession, just because of the number of pastors who had died and um, the the time gap between the two. I think it's William Kiffin, but I could be wrong on that. So we've now come to the end of my notes. That's all I have for you. Let's pray. And then if you will pray, we'll be dismissed. If you have any questions, feel free to ask me, but I don't want to hold all of you up for that. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this opportunity to consider a very brief overview of the pre-Reformation era and the post-Reformation era, particularly these um, three or four branches of the church that became predominant over the last 400 years. I pray that you would use these things to help, help us to consider our roots, to understand um, what has led us to this point today. Uh, that we recognize that we didn't just appear out of thin air, but there are actually people that have walked before us and and fought battles that we have never heard of. They have um, written documents that we have never seen, and these things have all been very important to help us be where we are, quite literally, today, even in this service. I uh, thank you for allowing us to be here. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.